This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 31, Project In-Depth, Hollow City. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And I'm not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. Dan! Yes! <laughs> We're going to talk about your funky, crazy book. Yes, we are. Give um, us an if, overview. If, if you haven't seen the, the other in-depth episodes that we've done, what we're going to do is take about 20 minutes, and they're going to grill me on this uh, book I wrote, and why I wrote it, and how I wrote it, and everything, and we're going to spoil the crud out of it. So, be okay, forewarned. Okay, first, first question. Why isn't this the fourth book in the John Cleaver trilogy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you've read all my German reviews. That's all they said about it, too. <laughs> No, they really liked it, but they were like, but we want more John Cleaver. Okay, so that actually goes back to a big part of why I wrote this, is because I uh, had the John Cleaver books come out. Uh, they were, you know, big hits, um, and people really liked them, and they, they specifically really liked John Cleaver. And so I wanted to be able to follow this, but I didn't want to get pigeonholed as the guy who writes about serial killers every time and writes the, you know, the same genre. Can I recommend that maybe you get a new Twitter handle? <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, you, but you did not seem to mind the I write about creepy, weird psychological diseases. Person. Yes, you would rather well, go and, that direction. And so, I, 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 I kind of designed this book. I thought this would be a nice step because it's similar enough to the others. It, it is a supernatural thriller. It's our world, but with some monsters in it, and it also has this very tight psychological focus to it. Rather than okay. sociopathy, The Hollow City is about schizophrenia. It's about a, a guy with schizophrenia who realizes that some of the monsters he sees are real. And so I thought it would be close enough, but at the same time branching off into other directions that it would, it would be weird. And so my books are all weird anyway. So if, if I'm being pigeonholed as anything, it's the guy who writes weird stuff. But, um, so brief overview of the book. It's about a guy named Michael who uh, actually begins the book um, in the hospital having lost some memory because of an accident. And he doesn't remember where he was. And uh, he is diagnosed as schizophrenic and put into a mental hospital. And over the course of about half the book, he, you know, the first half of the book is his treatment. And then the second half of the book, after he's been more or less you know, his brain's been normalized, the drugs are working, he's not hallucinating anymore, and then he still sees one of the monsters and thinks, well, maybe they're real, maybe I need to look into this more and figure out what they're planning and what they're trying to do. So it is, it's my take on schizophrenia mixed with the conspiracy story of everyone's out to get you, but it may or may not actually be real, so. Now, my, um, <clears throat> my initial question for you is, um, Reading this in writing group, it seemed like the biggest challenge for you as an author was to make your protagonist have things to do. Because yeah. he's locked in a mental institution, he's schizophrenic, so he's reacting to all these crazy things that are happening to him, and he's, he's basically locked up all day. Mm -hmm. So how did you approach writing a story about a person who had such a danger for being an inactive protagonist? My first instinct, and the way I wrote the first draft, was to have him see himself almost as a secret agent. Like he knows he's in a spy movie, so to speak. Mm. Um, not that it's ever that overt, but that he begins the story on the run from, you know, the evil conspiracy that's out to get him. And, uh, you know, and so he, he spends all his time trying to 
outthink the doctors and trying to escape from the mental hospital, a lot of that got edited out um, in the final draft of it, the final revision. And what we ended up with is more of, it is, it is him trying to work through his disease. What we ended up with, what ends up working, is not, you know, the secret agent escape from the bad guys, but the, you know, the guy who's trying to decide if he's really crazy or not. Why did that work so much better? Um, in part because it was a much more personal conflict. Um, it, it made it into more of a character-centric thing than an action thing. And we still got to have some good set pieces. There is one point where he is able to escape temporarily, um, and he gets into you know his doctor's office down the hall outside of the lockdown area. Um, but, um, well, and in, in, in that light, one of the other nice things of am I really crazy, you know, making that the main focus rather than I need to escape, it gave him the, a cool character moment when he finally does escape and he's out of the lockdown, he's escaping the hospital. It, it gave him the chance to think, wait a minute, if I really am sane, if, this, if, if I'm really not crazy and this conspiracy really is real, I shouldn't be running away from it. And so about halfway through, he has this kind of mini climax of his character arc where he takes control of his life, so to speak, and says, if this is real, I'm going to go after them instead of just running and hiding. Excellent. And if it isn't real, I should stay in the hospital and get treated. <laughs> which, which he does hit that point as well. You know, once the drugs start working and he realizes, you know, one of, the, one of his doctors points out to him, you know, you used to use the faceless men that you see as evidence that you're crazy. Now you're using them as evidence that you're not. You can't have it both ways. At some point in this scenario, you've been crazy, whether it's then or now. And he kind of is forced to think, okay, you know what? I am. And uh, th this is one of the great... The book's actually dedicated to my friend Jancy um, because she read the first draft of it at a point where I was really convinced that it was not working at all. We'd run it through uh, my writing group, and they, you know, kind of enjoyed it, but it still had a lot of problems. I wasn't convinced it was working. And my friend Jancy, who has struggled a great deal with depression and some other things like that, some similar but not the same issues, she said, you know, not only is this good, but this is important. She said, as someone with, with clinical depression, not being able to trust my own mind is the scariest thing in the entire world. And... You know, this is, a, this is a really good way of telling that story, mm. even though he's not specifically depressed. And so, um, and now I can't remember how we got onto this topic, but... Uh, but it's interesting, so feel free yeah. to keep rambling. <laughs> or I can rescue you with Please a question. Please rescue me, because... You're up, Mary. So, can other people see the monsters? And how did you decide whether or not they could? What I did... Um, when I was trying to figure out what the monsters were, I, I liked this idea of faceless men. And uh, this is actually kind of a, a, a cool backstory of how I came up with the monsters. Um, is at Conduit, which is uh, Salt Lake City's local sci-fi convention, uh, there's a guy who comes every year named Tom Carr who runs a, like a paranormal investigation. He's basically a ghost hunter professionally. And he was giving a talk in the green room to some interested people that I happened to overhear. And it was right at the time when... TV and radio were switching over to an all-digital model, and it was all the HD or whatever. And he said, what that means is, you know, now we have the ability with uh, some of our little electrical devices to pick up 
um, ghost signals and occasionally hear ghosts and things like that. Um, once TV and radio are no longer using these massive you know, bands of frequency that are currently filled, those will all be empty and that will open up the opportunity to hear potentially so much more paranormal communication than we've ever heard before. And so that fascinated me and I thought that's really cool and my so so what I did and and you know that idea itself did not survive into the the final draft of the book but but I basically posited the existence of these electri- you know here's the spoiler um they're they're aliens so to speak or or creatures that are electrical fields sentient electrical fields that have been living on earth forever but as our society has advanced and we are using more and more electromagnetics it's hurting them it's you know a, a Crowding cell them out. phone call goes through them and it will hurt them because it will disrupt their field. And so I thought, you know, the, the original idea was to have these monsters be behind the, um, the changeover of the, the, the frequencies <laughs> because then all of a sudden they're safe and they're not being bombarded by quite as much of it. That ended up not working for a lot of uh, pragmatic reasons. But uh, what remained was these, you know, this idea of these electrical beings that are uh, trying to get rid of us because of our technology is hurting them. And so... So we were fine when we were just making fire with sticks. Yeah, back when we were just, you know, waving clubs around at the stars, we were okay. Um, What? So to your question about can people see the monsters, what's really going on here is uh, what he sees as a faceless person is actually a human being that has been possessed by one of these, which creates an electrical field right around their head and since he also has one in him, spoiler warning, um, <laughs> I think it's the... he is able to recognize them. And so what he's actually seeing is not the absence of a face, but kind of a, a warping of the air around the their The presence face. of interference. So he can see someone and know that they're one of these faceless men, um, whereas everyone else just sees a normal person. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Interesting. Dan, we're going to stop for our book of the week, and uh, Dan is going to give Dan us our book of the week. Dan also has the book of the week. Our book of the week this week is Sucks to Be Me by Kimberly Pauley, which is, uh, I do not read a lot of uh, paranormal YA, uh, but I loved this one. It's uh, about a teenage girl who is a vampire and is trying to deal with it, and it was... Uh, it's a book not a lot of people have heard of because it was one of the very last books Wizards of the Coast produced back when they still did non-D&D books. It was basically the last one they put out and then its sequel later and uh, then that publishing arm kind of disappeared and so it didn't get uh, publicized as well. But uh, the reason it works for me where so many others don't is because it is funny. It is just hilarious. I love it. And so I recommend highly Sucks to Be Me by Kimberly Pauly. Okay, well, y'all go ahead and uh, point your inner tube at uh, audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 14-day free trial membership and download Sucks to Be Me as recommended by Dan Wells, a book by Kimberly Pauly. And uh, 
Going back to Dan Wells now. Yeah. Oh, hey. Did you use an outline for this book? I did use an outline for this book. Uh, one of the first things I did, um, because I was trying to figure out, you know, I, I was trying to just try new things, because I always try to do that when I write books. And so what I did with this is actually, I thought, how cool would it be to have a fugue structure to it? And so I took, um, and now I can't remember uh, the name of it, but one of Bach's really famous fugues, do, 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 that one. Okay. I hope I sung that well enough for people to recognize it. We'll get and, that in the uh, liner notes for you. Analyzed it, you know, here's where the theme appears, here's where it's repeated, here's where it's repeated, and then worked out, here's what every section means, and then how is that going to work? You know, this, you know, this portion of the orchestra is going to represent this plot, and did this entire elaborate thing and ran this through, and uh, was very proud of it, and then it didn't work. It failed miserably. It produced a, <laughs> a horrible, horrible book that just didn't make any sense. Um, and so that was the outline that I was working on. And really what it ended up with, because it, I still, you know, maybe this is a, a pie-in-the-sky dream, but I still would like to do something like that and make it work. What didn't work this time is that I was not differentiating the different scenes enough. And so it ended up just being very repetitive mm. as a book. Um, rather than having the same themes repeated for different characters and situations, it was just the same back and forth, I'm crazy, I'm not crazy, I'm crazy, I'm not crazy, and it, and it got old. And so what ended up happening is I outlined it that way and then cut about half of it out and added a couple of extra characters and uh, a prologue that's from a different perspective, and that tied it all together. So, so you used the fugue as the beginning of a uh, through-composed through theme and variations uh, after editing all of the boring fugue bits. Yes. Just, I, I ended up writing what I thought was cool, and then I cut out all the garbage and ended up with a pretty good book. So I was sitting here as you were describing the fugue structure thinking, so you don't just write about crazy people, you are a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am embarrassed to admit how much time I spent putting that uh, okay, so fugue structure together. Question, um, the, the ending, how many endings did you throw out before you arrived at the ending you used? I don't know exactly, but I know that I threw out a few. Um, the first ending was too long. The second ending was too small. Um, what, what convinced me that I needed a big ending was actually, uh, um, the, I can't even remember which movie it was now, but it was a movie about uh, aliens doing some kind of experimentation on people. And uh, by the t when you see the actual reveal, it's so much bigger than the movie has led you to believe. And it just kind of blows your mind. And I thought, that's what this is missing. You know, it, I've been keeping it too small scale. What I ended up with is still not, you know, enormous, but it is at least world-threatening once he finally sees it. And that ended up working a lot better than the original ending because it gave him, you know, a reason to be so desperate about it. It's not just, you know, at, at some point the question has to move from what's wrong with me to doesn't matter what's wrong with me, I have to save everybody else, whether they believe me or not. And so adding that layer of, of world danger to it helped a Upping lot. Upping the stakes. Yes, thank you. How, um, <clears throat> did you have trouble 
creating another psychotic main character, single character driven book that did not overlap with John Cleaver? The voice of this character, or did it just come very naturally? Not really. Um, it, it, it wasn't a problem because John is an incredibly active character and a very um, closed character. He's very insular. He's very self-contained. He does not express emotion, obviously. Um, whereas Michael's very different. Michael needs other people in his life. And Michael is very, you know, his heart is on his sleeve the whole time. And, and uh, all of his emotions and his reactions are very broad. And so maybe, maybe that was a, a, an actual reaction to having just written John Cleaver. But if it is, I didn't do it on purpose. Okay. I was mostly just trying to come up with somebody who would be interesting to watch for a while. How did you come up with him? Well, I don't know. <laughs> did you write your way into this character? It felt like you started with him much stronger, at least in the draft I read, than oftentimes you do with your characters. Um, yeah, and, and part of that, I think, is the draft you read, he was still a secret agent in the beginning of it. Mm. And so I still, <laughs> I, I had a better handle on, uh, on who he was right off the bat. A lot of that ended up changing. I do tend to write myself into characters. And uh, what made this guy work for me was, I mean, all, all, the, all the problems that I had getting him to work as a character were not, had, had, didn't have anything to do with him. It had to do with the way the book is, is narrated. It's first person from the point of view of a man who is hallucinating most of the time. And so it was very confusing, and it was very hard to figure out what was real. You know, if he said something, how did you know you could trust it? And so the, the two fixes that I did in, you know, one of the major revisions, first of all, I added a prologue that was third person from outside. Some FBI agents are investigating something, and then you, you know, that, that allowed you to have a very firm foothold going into the book. I know this stuff is real because sane people saw it. And then the other thing was I threw in an extra character of a reporter who is trying to, you know, get the scoop and follow the story on uh, this other mystery that's going on. There's a serial killer in it because, you know, I had to put a serial killer into it. Um, and so she's trying to follow that. And every, you know, Michael is, is not entirely convinced that he's not the serial killer because he's missing all these chunks of memory and, uh, and everything's intertwined at the end. And so the, the reporter character was another way of, of gra grounding things in reality that made Michael's character, which was already pretty strong, readable enough to function for, for the audience. So this is a very um, mundane question, but names. I noticed that like John and Michael have two of the most popular male names. <laughs> But but John's name is very specific, and and there you know plays a role in mm -hmm. uh, the serial killer books. Does yeah. Michael's name also have similar weight? Michael doesn't. Um, Michael is was basically chosen because it, like John, is a very common name, and then Shipman as his last name. I don't even remember where that came from. Um, it, I, I may have some cool reason for it. The, the, we can go back and edit. So we'll go back and add one in later. <laughs> the, the readers will all tell us what his name means. He's, uh, his mind is a ship carrying all these extra hallucinations. <laughs> um, all these extra men. <laughs> there we go. No, um, where, where the names come into play 
is uh, I and and I and I did this mostly just for me because I thought it would be neat. It's not really overt to readers, um, but like like with the John Cleaver series, I tried to find a specific background. There's a very kind of Scandinavian flavor to most of the surnames of the people who live in Clayton. And so I thought, well, let's do that um, again, but I'm, uh, the story's set in Chicago, so obviously not everyone's gonna have the same racial background, but uh, I chose Czech, um, the Czech Republic. And so basically everyone who is a faceless man or a hallucination at some point turns out to have a, a Czech last name hmm. or first name. And you know that doesn't become obvious till the end because as is typical in schizophrenia stories, you don't know who's real until the very end. Um, but I, I liked throwing that in there because it gave me, first of all, a sense of consistency across, you know, that there's, it, it let me use different names that you wouldn't see very often. There's a police officer named Officer Kapeki, which I just thought was a really cool name. Um, and I thought, well, why don't we have more people named Kapeki? That's a cool name. Uh, but then by the time you get to the end, you realize that uh, for whatever reason, and all these, you know, all the, all the imaginary people and all the bad guys are Czech. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me Well, Czech, we'll see how your, how your next book sells in uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah, <laughs> we'll hope that that goes over well. And there, there actually is a very good reason for it, so. All right, <clears throat> Howard, you seem to have a... Writing I've got prompt. a writing prompt, uh, and it's a, it's a timely one. Um, go out there and find an interesting mental illness before Dan takes all the good ones. Um, do a little research and write yourself a chapter from the point of view of somebody who's not quite right in the head. Um, but in writing this, don't tell us what's wrong. Just try and communicate it through their point of view. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.